So as I said, we are starting this series titled Upon This Rock. And so today we are kicking off our Easter season. Like I said, this, again, message series, uh, we're, we're going to be studying um, and the Easter story and about all this. But, but this year, though, as we come to Easter, I mean, as we come to this series, we're going to be looking at Easter through a little different perspective, through a different lens. Okay, we're going to be looking at all of the festivities of Easter through the eyes of Peter. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. In fact, you see that they, Peter was a part of Jesus' inner three. Jesus had the 12 disciples that he spent a lot of time with and, and did life with for three years. Okay, but he had, um, there were three of the 12 that Jesus spent extra time with. Okay, and that was Peter, James, and John. Okay, and, and we also know from Scripture that, that Peter was, was the oldest disciple. They, of the physical age, he was the oldest one. Peter was also the only disciple that was married. He had a wife and, and a household. And, and, and as we see all of this from, from Peter, we, we also see that, that, that Jesus um, centered and focused on Peter in ways he didn't on other disciples. Now, part of that is because of Peter's personality. I mean, as, as we look in Scripture, right, through the Gospels, and, and even into Acts after Jesus, um, you know, after his resurrection and his ascension, right, and then, then kind of Peter takes over. And, and we see he was a very um, vibrant person, a very outgoing personality, right? He, he was one of those people that, that kind of jumps in and speaks first and thinks later. And oftentimes we see his personality come out in the Gospels of, of where Peter says stuff that he hasn't thought of yet, right? And sometimes Jesus affirms these things, and sometimes Jesus reprimands him. In fact, we're going to see that this morning um, as we jump into kind of the foundation of, uh, of this series and, and kind of even where literally the title comes from and of Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bible with you, here with us in person, there are Bibles provided for you in the seats you're welcome to use, but we're going to open up to Matthew chapter 16. And uh, again, if we find out if you're with us online, it's great to have you with us. If you have your own Bible, you can read along. If not, you can just listen as, as, as I read it. Um, but we're going to be uh, hanging out this morning in Matthew 16. And so, if you, again, if you have your Bible open, just, just leave it open. We're going to go back to it a couple different times um, as we're kind of introduced here in this, this moment with, to this relationship between Jesus uh, and, and Peter. So we're going to um, pick up this story here in Matthew 16, um, starting at verse 13. All right, where it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He then asked them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Now, I want to pause there, and like I said, we're going to, we're going to come back to that here in a moment, and so just leave your Bible open. But as we see this, um, the, these, these opening verses here, of this section of Matthew 16, okay, we, we see this question that, that Jesus just Ask the disciples. Now, the interesting thing is why Jesus refers to himself in the third person, which is always really interesting. You know, like, why, why does he, I don't know why he does that, right? But he's literally asking him, who does everybody, what, what are they saying about me? 
right, about the Son of Man. Again, the, the, that's the title that Jesus used for himself a lot throughout the Gospels, right? And he says, who, what, what is everybody saying? What, what are they saying? Because by this point in Jesus' ministry, he's created quite a stir, right? His, he, he's pretty famous, honestly, right? Because of his healings, because of his miracles, because of his poking at the Pharisees and at the Sabbath laws and kind of all these different things. Jesus has created this buzz, right? And so he asks the disciples, hey, what are people saying? Right? And notice they kind of give these, these kind of popcorn answers. and Like, well, some, some say they're, you're this prophet or that prophet. And basically it's saying that people just aren't sure what to do with you, Jesus. Right? And, and then oh, he, he, he kind of hones in the question right to the disciples. He's like, okay, that's what everybody else is saying about me. But, but what do you guys say? You guys know me the best, right? You've been with me the most. Like, like, what do you guys say? And then that's when Peter speaks up. Right? And, and, and as, we, as we see this, right, we learn here, the first thing that I just want to point out here is this, this most foundational question, not just about who do we believe Jesus is. And that's a very, very strong foundational question because it's at the core of our faith. Is what do we know and what do we believe about Jesus? And, and so the reality, just like the disciples, just like what Jesus is doing here, is that we must clearly define Jesus in our own mind and heart. Okay, we must clearly define Jesus in our own mind and heart. In fact, if you look at all of the world's religions, this is what makes them different. Right, is go down to, through all of our religions and say, how do they define Jesus? Right, because every world religion, right, whether it's Buddhism or, or um, you know, Islam, right, or, or Christianity, or, or Orthodox Jew, whatever, they, they all define Jesus differently. Okay, and this is the deciding factor of whether it's the true gospel or it's not. And so we must clearly define Jesus right, in our own mind and heart. What do I believe about Jesus? Right? And, and unless we get this question right, until we truly answer this question for ourselves, our faith is stalled. Right? We're never going to move forward in that faith journey until we get this one right. Who is Jesus? Right? And, and so, if they ask, literally, I encourage you to, to, to ask this question. I mean, it's exactly right what Jesus presents in verse 13 when jesus came to the region of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say the son of man is this is where we have to start church it's where we all start this is where our faith journey starts how do you define jesus who what do we see right then we we see this this story continues then as we pick up and i want to go back we're going to start again here at, at verse 17 says, so Jesus replies, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you forbid on earth will be for forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone 
that he was the Messiah. Now, there's, there's a lot that happens in these few verses. Okay? And so, but as we look at this and start to kind of see what's happening here, what does Jesus present? Because notice here, right, Jesus kind of gives this, this, this question, right? He throws this out. And then based on these responses, then again, Peter blurts out, right, this, this response that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus dives deeper into what that means in these verses. And this is also, though, where we see the high point for Peter, right? This is where Jesus um, commends him for his answer, right? And we see this high point for Peter. It was where he is identified as a foundational leader by Jesus, Right, this, is, this is where Jesus literally changes his name. Right? He changes it from Simon to Peter. And from this point on, throughout the Gospels, and from this event, is where he is now referenced as Peter. Not Simon Peter. And this is where, again, this is a turning point in his, his faith journey. Right? This is where, where Jesus tells him, Upon this rock, I will build my church. He says, you are going to be the, the foundational leader. Right? Again, Jesus is setting him up at this moment. He, he's commissioning him of saying, Peter, when, 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 after I you know, have to do, suffer, die, rise again, accomplish the mission that I'm here to do as a Messiah, right, that you just clearly said that I was, once I accomplish that, then, then the next phase of the plan is centered on you, Peter. You will be the rock that we will build a church on. This is the high point for Peter. Right? We see this in verses 17 and 18. Right? And Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because of my Father in heaven, has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now, this is a very powerful concept. Right? This is not only Jesus anointing Peter at, as the leader right, of the future church, but notice this is also Jesus anointing the church. And this is not about Oregon Trail or about Grace Middleton or Canyon Springs or, or CFC right, or Crossroads, Caldwell, or any of the other church, specific churches. This is about the church, I mean the big C church. Right? And, and when we see this here, right, and Jesus not only anoints Peter, but he also makes the, this, this incredible statement about his church, right? That, that the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now, we as the church today in 2022 need to claim that anointing and claim that promise of our Savior and Messiah and God himself, right? Because if you, if you read certain kind of news outlets, right, or, or, or read different, different websites, right, or, or even look at, at survey uh, or even census data that is just coming out, right, from this last census, the reality is, is that this might not seem like it's true. In fact, I don't know if you see that, but for the first time in American history, right, as, this, as this, the U.S. census data is now being released, Right, for the first time in American history, that even people in America that claim to be evangelical Christians declined in our American culture for the first time. Does that worry anyone else? 
It should bother us. It doesn't worry me, it bothers me. Right? It doesn't worry me because the powers of hell will never conquer the church. Right? But it also inspires me to say, guys, we as the church, we have a lot of work to do. Right? When we see this, this, this claim of Jesus, right, he's, he makes this illustration in this place. If you go back to verse 13, right, it says that basically Jesus took the disciples on a field trip. Okay, they traveled north in Israel to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Hey, now, um, I, I went to the Holy Land a few years ago, and this was one of the sites that we visited when we were there. Okay, now, when we went to, to Caesarea Philippi, okay, like I said, it's, it's, it's north, it's above um, in the country, it's, it's up in the mountains, okay, it's, it's past the Galilee and where the Sea of Galilee is and the Jordan River and, and Jerusalem, kind of all that stuff. It's way north in, in the country. Hey, now, up in Caesarea Philippi, this is a very specific place, okay? In fact, this was... This was a town in Jesus' time um, that was not a good place. In fact, this Caesarea Philippi okay, was um, the, one of the most pagan, worldly, and sinful places in Israel. You know, again, we can all think about it like we can identify it maybe with a few American cities, right? One of them is kind of, kind of directly south of us. Okay, but, but honestly, Caesarea Philippi was way worse than even Sin City. Okay, when we go there, though, when we went there, we saw this. When we show up, there's, there is, this is a picture from Caesarea Philippi. Okay, the, the, the one you see there, there's this cave there in the side of this, this cliff, right? This, this, this town, this village was built here on the side of this cliff. And, and there in this cave, right, was, um, this, it was a, basically a bottomless cave, and because at the bottom of where they got to it, it was the water table, and again, we still don't even know how deep it goes. Now, again, in this time, there was some hot springs and different stuff. Steam would come out of it. There's a different time, and so like this cave, right, was, was dubbed by the culture as the, literally the gates of hell, and we see, so there's this cave, you see in this, the other picture, there's along the bottom of the cliff, there, there were all of these pagan temples, right, and built to these Greek gods, and, and the, you know, Zeus, and all those things, and, and, and in, this is in Caesarea Philippi, and, and throughout the, the different times of the year when, like, you know, the, 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 the hot springs would steam out of, out of there, whatever, they would literally sacrifice humans into this cave. And, and they would believe, right, that if they didn't do that, that all of the demons and, and the saint himself would, would come out and, like, curse them. Right? And this cave literally was known as the gates of hell. And when Jesus looks at Peter, when he makes this statement, right, and saying that the gates of hell will never conquer it, I mean, they were standing in the middle of Caesarea Philippi. Right, in one of the, the nastiest towns and places you can imagine, right, uh, of the sexual sin and the idol worship and, and uh, just everything that's happening in this place. And Jesus takes the disciples there, right, and he asks them this question in the middle of, of the, the most filth, right, that the human sinful nature can bring forth. Jesus looks at the disciples and says, who am I to you? Right? And, he, and then Peter comes out with this question, right? 
Again, and he tells him, he's like, but my church, not even all of this can hold it back. Right? Not even all of this. And, and when we see that, right, then, then we also, though, see that this, this is not the end of the story. I mean, the passage continues on. Right? We're going to pick up here at verse 21. Okay, where he says, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, at the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying these things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Again, as they're standing here in the middle of this, this town, right? They're literally the gates of hell, I mean, are, are above them, right? As they, they see this, Jesus makes this statement. Then we see where, where Peter goes from the high point, right? Where Jesus anoints him as, as the rock of the church, right? Until here, just a few verses later, we see the low point for Peter, right? Where Jesus identifies him as Satan. Man, talk about an emotional roller coaster. I mean, here from the high point, right, you're the rock, right, uh, of the church, right, and you're a foundational leader, and then just within a few minutes later, a few verses later in the same conversation, right, he's, Peter blurts out, right, again, right, as Jesus says, hey, guys, this is how I'm going to conquer all of this, right? I have to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, but I'm not going to stay dead, I'm going to rise again. Right, and then Peter jumps up, he opens his mouth, he inserts his foot, right, and says, not on my watch, Jesus, Right? And then he's literally reprimanded by Jesus and called Satan. I mean, literally, right? It says, but Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Again, as we see this, we realize, right, that Jesus was tempted by Satan. I mean, he acknowledges it here. Now, we already know that, don't we? Right? If you look back in the Gospels, right before Jesus ever started his earthly ministry, he was baptized by John the Baptist, and then he, from there, he went out into the desert, and he was tempted by Satan. Right? As he was preparing and being anointed for his public ministry. So he was already tempted by Satan right before he started that. We, we see that. We see the accounts of that in the Gospels. But we also see here, by Jesus' response to Peter here, we know that that was not the only time Jesus was tempted by Satan. Right? He was tempted more than just then. Okay? Now, again, Jesus, remember, our Messiah, we believe the foundation of our faith that Jesus is 100% divine. But he is also 100% human. And as human, he was also tempted, just like all of us are. In fact, scripture tells us that he understands our temptation because he experienced every temptation we do, but he overcame it. Right, so Jesus was tempted by saying, we know that, right? We see that. That's confirmed in the gospels. And yet there, there's a bit of irony here, right? The fact that just a few verses after being identified as a rock, he is now identifying Peter as a stumbling block. And this is exactly the irony of Caesarea Philippi, 
Okay, again, in this, in this place, right, is you have literally the gates of hell, right? The, uh, all of the, the pagan worship and the sin and just everything that's happening there. But that's not the only thing that's in Caesarea Philippi. Okay, you know what else is in Caesarea Philippi? It is the, the Hermon River Springs is also in Caesarea Philippi. Okay, and just below this cliff and where this, this cave is and all these pagan temples and the gates of hell and this, this, this cave was known as, right, right below that are these springs of water. Okay, you can see there, the cave is kind of in the background there in the, in the, in, in the cliff. Okay, and then here in front of this is these, these springs. And these springs just boil up. This water comes up out of the ground and it starts to, to flow and it becomes a stream and the stream becomes a river. Guess what? Where this water ends up, it's the Jordan River. Okay, this water flows out of the mountains, and it fills the Sea of Galilee. And then from the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River continues down right through Israel and ends, and ends in the Dead Sea. Okay, and we see here that this, this strange irony, right, of, of literally you have the gates of hell, right, coming out of the side of the cliff, and yet you also have the living water flowing out of this place. This is the same river that Jesus was baptized in, right? This is the same Sea of Galilee, the same water, right, that Jesus did all his miracles, and, and, and you know, the, the center of that is, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount was literally overlooking the Sea of Galilee, right? There's, I mean, this, the, the core of, of everything that Jesus did, right, was, was centered on these waters. And this is exactly the irony of this place. You have the gates of hell and the Hermon River Springs. You have the place of death and the source of life that are literally right next to each other. And Jesus chose this place, right, to to teach this lesson to the disciples. Yes, we have the powers of hell and evil, but we also have the source of life, right, that flows through Jesus. Because what was one of the main, main biggest claims that Jesus made about himself as the Messiah? He was the living water. Right? And as we see this play out in front of us, right, is, is we see, again, what was the difference, right, between, between Jesus, or Peter being anointed, right, as the foundation leader of the church, and, and him being identified as a stumbling block for Jesus. What was the difference? What made the difference? Okay, I'll tell you, what determined Peter's high and low points was his point of view. Again, I don't know if you caught it when you read the verses or the text, but notice that Jesus tells Peter, he identifies what the difference is. In fact, when you see in the first part, in verse 17, right, right before he's, when, while he's anointed, right, as the, the, the building block of the church, in verse 17, Jesus tells Peter, he says, you did not learn this from any human being. The source of that knowledge was God himself, the Holy Spirit, okay, that's where that came from, right? That perspective, again, for, for Peter at the time when he was anointed, right, as the rock of the church, right? Jesus tells Peter, he's like, but your perspective is, your point of view is coming from God, not from any human, right? But then what did he say later in verse 23, right? When he tells him, 
you know, that when, when Peter comes and says, don't, you know, you're not going to have to die. You're not going to do that. I'll protect you, whatever. Right? He says in verse 23, he says, Peter, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not God's. So what was the difference? What was, what was the change? What made, again, the one or the other, it was his point of view. One of them was the human point of view, and one of them was God's point of view. And so if we know and we learn from Peter, right, that, that his high and low points, the difference was whether he's seeing things through, through God's eyes or seeing it through his own human, sinful, fallen eyes. When we see that, that's what determined the difference for Peter. So what do we learn? Right, then we learn that therefore we constantly have to fight to keep the right point of view. Okay, as a follower of Jesus, I have to fight for that view. I can't let my, my, my flesh, you know, cloud my judgment. I can't let the world speak louder than the Holy Spirit in my life and in my heart. Right, that I have to fight for that perspective. And, and there's a lot of different ways that we fight for it. Okay, we, we fight for it through again, moving forward in our faith journey. Right, we fight for it with that, that, that prayer, that discipline of prayer, and hearing God's voice, of learning how to hear God's voice, of being in, regularly in Scripture, right, of being, being, consuming the things of God so that I can contribute to his kingdom. We have to constantly fight to keep the right point of view. And then we see this section, right, of uh, where it, it ends. We read in verse 20 uh, of where Jesus tells them to not tell anybody that he's the Messiah. Right? Now, now this, this verse is a little confusing. Right? Why would Jesus not want, it, want them to tell others that he was the Messiah? Right, as he's standing in the middle of Caesarea Philippi, they see this, all of the evil, right, and the, the source of the springs and the source of life playing out. They, they see this, this, this physical illustration in front of them in this town. Right, and Jesus is making this, and he says, by the way, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. Right, I feel like why he says this at this point, right, is because the story was not yet complete. Jesus was focusing on his disciples and helping them understand the whole story. He wanted people to understand the commitment they were making before they make it. He, he wanted them to understand the fight that was in front of them that they were going to have to take on if they chose to follow Jesus and to stay with him. Again, as we look at our core values, right, our core value number one for our church is that Jesus is the destination of our journey. And that core value is so important for this exact reason, because we have to fight to keep that true. That I continually put my focus in the right place, right, so that I get God's point of view and not the world's and not the human side of things and, and all those things, right? That we have to keep Christ at the center of everything. And then we move into this last section of Scripture, verses 24 through 28. And this is where Jesus just gives us the truth about following him. Okay, Matthew 16, picking up at verse 24. He says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. 
If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now as we read these verses, these incredibly challenging verses from Jesus, right, he makes this, this statement in verse 24. Right, he says, then Jesus says to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Again, there's, in this statement, right, this is a powerful statement, this is a core statement, right, of what it means to follow Jesus. Do you want to be a follower of Jesus? If you do, there are some prerequisites that you must wrestle with. Because no, that's exactly what he says, right? If you really want to be my follower, then this is what you have to do. He says, here's what you have to do. You have to give up your own way, and you have to take up your cross. Now again, I want to be very clear here to say, right, is that we do not have to earn our salvation. Okay, we don't. Hey, that... That, that price has already been paid, right, by Jesus' life, his death, and by his resurrection. And he was the perfect sacrifice. Hey, we are saved by grace, not of works, right? And that is a completely true. And Jesus is not counteracting that, by the way, right here. At first glance, it seems like maybe he is, but he's not, right? That's not what he's saying. Okay, what he's saying is, is you need to realize what it takes to really follow him, right? Because your salvation is already free. It's already been bought, right? You don't have to do anything to earn it. But once you receive it, if you receive it, right, then you need to do these two things. You need to give up your own way and take up your cross in order to follow me. Now, get everybody knew what a cross was for. Okay, a cross was used for capital punishment. Right? A cross meant that you were dying. Right? There, there, Jesus is not mincing words here. This is a very clear distinction to everybody who heard the statement in its original context. Everybody knew what Jesus meant. You have to die. Die, not your physical you know, death, right? but die to yourself. We get, which, so literally the same thing, right? You take up your cross and give up your own way. I mean, that's what he's saying. Like, you have to die to yourself. Give up your own, your, your ego, your plans, like your, everything. You have to give that up, right? Crucify it on the cross. And then you can follow me. Again, there's no prerequisite to salvation. Through grace, it's completely free. But the point Jesus is making here is that the, 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 the decision to accept grace comes with a lot of ripples. Okay, the decision to accept grace and to be saved, to join the journey of faith, comes with a lot of ripples. Right, because when you do that, when you genuinely, like, submit yourself to God, when you die to yourself and receive your salvation, right, then there's all kinds of ripples that run out from that decision. 
that as we think about that concept, okay, just here's a picture, right, of a rock still right where it's right entering the water. Okay, and notice what happens, right, when it disrupts that water. There's all these little waves and ripples that go out from there. Okay, and that one little rock, right, will affect the entire body of water, right, with these ripples and waves. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling us. Is that, again, your salvation's free, right? But if you truly do that and die to yourself, accept it and save it and join the journey of faith, right, then, then the ripples start, right? And, and you have to live that out. And that's not easy, right? And, and other people don't like ripples, right? And people are gonna, gonna say things about you and, and what, right, the, the, the ripples start, but, but that's what the faith journey is about, right, is dealing with the ripples. Because it's supposed to change every part of your life if you choose to follow Jesus. And that's exactly what he's telling the disciples. And that's exactly what he's telling us. If you are truly surrendered to Jesus, what kind of ripples are going through your life? Again, and as the world continues to drift further and further away from God and his design, the ripples will get bigger and bigger if once you decide to go in a different direction. When you accept Jesus in your life, not only do you find salvation, but you also receive the Holy Spirit. And you start to see the world from God's point of view. As his spirit transforms your life and your heart and your mind. I mean, scripture literally says he will change the way you think. And by the way, that's exactly what we want. So how do I keep God's point of view as I journey forward? Once I receive Christ as my Savior and I join the journey of faith, how do I stay in the journey? Right, how do I move forward? Hey, there, Jesus gives us two very distinct steps here. He answers this question in the convert, concluding verses of this chapter. Okay, uh, Matthew 16, verses 25 and 26. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth your soul? Again, he says, like, as a follower of Jesus, right, that you have to hang on to different things than you did before following Jesus. Again, he says, if you hang on to your life, you will lose it. He's like, so you got to let go of your own way. Right? And, and what do, but what do we cling to, right? We cling to God. We have to hang on to different things than we held on to before Jesus. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Okay, when you first accept Christ as your Savior, and you join your, you are a baby Christian, right? And you start on the milk of the word. Right, but that's what, again, our faith journey is all about. It's what these phases of growth is all about, is the fact that we don't stay there, right? That we grow and we mature and we're transformed by God. Right, so that we move off of spiritual milk and we move to the meat of who God is and what he wants us to do. And when we move from, from consuming the things of God to contributing to God's kingdom. Right, as, as we grow and mature in our life, right, different things become important to us. Again, things are, different things are way important to me today than they were when I was in my 20s or when I was in my teens, right? Because I've matured, I've grown up. My perspective's changed. And the same should be true in your faith. 
Right, so, again, what, as you grow and mature in Christ, what matters to you will change. I don't, I'm not so worried about what others think of me. I'm more worried about what God thinks of me. That's one example. Okay, the first thing is I hang on to different things than I did before following Jesus. The other, the second thing that Jesus gives us on how do I, I keep God's point of view as I journey forward comes in verse 27. Okay, where he says, For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and I will judge all people according to their deeds. Now, again, if you use this verse out of context, right, you can make that, think that it's talking about your salvation, right? That I need to work for my salvation. I tell you, this is not about salvation. Right? This verse is about your life if with Christ when you're in the journey, right? Your salvation's already been done, right? But yet he says, but the things that you do really matter. Okay, the literal translation here is he says, it's according to one's practice. In other words, you will be judged by what the focus of your life is. Okay, which means, right, that my motivations and actions stay focused on God instead of myself. Right, they're focused on God instead of myself. And, and as we think about this and as we go, again, that means that I, I, again, I make decisions based on what God thinks, not about what I think or about what the world thinks. I, I, I grow my life and my faith, right, based on my, that motivations to stay focused on God. Okay, in 1 Samuel 16, right, it says, The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, that's what, that's what we're going to be judged on, right? I mean, again, not judged on for our salvation, but, but judged on, on our perspective and our life. And, and what have we done with what God has given us? And again, I know, right, for all of us, I think uh, as a follower of Jesus, our desires when we stand in front of Jesus on Judgment Day that we hear those words that we all want to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant, Right? Again, but just, just the idea that, that that's our goal, right? It implies that we're being judged by what we do with our lives, doesn't it? What we do with our lives after Jesus, after we're saved. When we're in the journey, are we moving forward? Are we fulfilling what God needs us to do? Again, I don't know where you're at in your life or your faith right now. Whether you've joined the journey or not, if you've never joined the journey of faith, and I'll say then you can pray and accept Christ as your Savior today. That's how you join the journey of faith. Right, and because and, you can't try and change yourself, right? No, you have to die to yourself, right? So that God can change you. And that starts with the salvation experience of accepting his love and his grace and his forgiveness. Right, being washed clean by the blood of the lamb so I can join the journey of faith and start moving forward, being transformed by his spirit. But if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, right, then the question is, are you, are you growing? Are you moving forward? Are you fulfilling what God needs you to do? Do you have God's perspective? And this is my final thought this morning. It's this. If, if you follow Jesus, he doesn't guarantee to change your circumstances, but he will change your perspective. So are you fighting with God's point of view or your own? Because the reality is we're fighting. Right? We, are, we don't get to choose if we're in the war. Right? We do get to choose if we fight with our power or with God's power. Fight with God's power today. Right? Whatever your next step in your journey is, I, I just encourage you to take it. Right, whether that's, that's salvation, right, whether that is getting a journey class, getting a small group, serving somewhere, 
right? Inviting people, whatever that is, whatever God's leading you to do in your life, move forward today. Lord God, we are so thankful, God, that you live. God, that you hold our future in your hands. God, that, that you have an abundant life set out for us. And God, we also realize, God, that we have to journey with you. We have to surrender to your spirit to die to ourselves. And God, I pray that as we go today, Lord, that we would truly be your church, that we would take up our cross every day. Lord, we would surrender to your spirit. And God, that we would represent your church well. God, we go with the anointing, God, that the powers of hell can never conquer your church. And God, as followers of you, we are your church. And God, as we go this week and as we as we prepare our hearts and our minds for Easter, as we share your light and your love in this community and invite others to, to find you, God, to journey with you, I pray that you would guide our steps, open our eyes, Lord, give us your perspective in every moment this next week as we live out our faith, as we fight with your power, God, and as we represent you well as your church. We praise you, God, that you saved us, you're transforming us. And God, that you use us to expand your kingdom and build your church. Guide us as we go this week. In Jesus' name we pray.